Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, the 23rd of October, 2012, and Susie Boss is back. Welcome, Susie. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Really fun. This is a fun topic. I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book, Bringing Innovation to School, Empowering Students to Thrive in a Changing World. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, web20labs.com. Uh, thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. Uh, Mighty Bell is Gina Bianchini's newest venture in Blackboard. Of course, you all know, previously Illuminate. Thanks so much to them for providing this room. I am on my Hack Your Education tour, which is this crazy scheme that uh, I'm actually canceling this weekend, which was New York. but. After that will be Boston and then Philadelphia and DC. So lots of fun. Feel free to look there. It's hackyoureducation.com. We've had two really fun conferences uh, in the past couple of months. We had the Learning 2.0 conference, which is all recorded and up online. We also had the Future of Libraries conference, Library 2.012, thanks to San Jose State University. And both of those conferences, all of the sessions are up and available for you to watch free of charge. And then coming up November 12th to 17th, our great global education conference. There is still time to submit to present. This is a highly inclusive worldwide conference that allows educators to teach each other how they are doing collaborative global projects with students and teachers. Uh, we're very proud of this, and we just love the way in which teachers are doing peer professional development through these conferences, and the Global Education Conference started it all. So Lucia Gray and I co-chair that, and we do hope that if, you, if you're not brave enough to submit to present this year, at least please come and enjoy five days, 24 hours a day. This year, we are partnering with IRON, so we have an, an, an enormous number of sessions through IRON, which is really going to be fun, so don't miss it. Coming up tomorrow night on the Future of Education, Denise Pope talks about her program called Challenge Success. This is really worth paying attention to. I've blogged about it today. Uh, she's at Stanford. She wrote the book uh, Doing School and has been um, a proponent of alternate ways of thinking about achievement and really deep thinking. So please consider coming to that. And then on Thursday, Jamie McMillan comes on to talk about her book, Legendary Learning, The Famous Homeschooler's Guide to Self-Directed Excellence. Can't wait for that. Next week, Cal Newport comes back to talk to us on so good, that, so good They Can't Ignore You, Why Skills Trump Passion in the Quest for Work You Love. Cal is going to present a counter-argument to the idea of focusing on students' passions early in school. I can't wait to talk to him about that. Anyway, lots more coming up, <coughs> um, including, of course, the Global Education Conference, the 12th to the 16th. If you've missed any sessions, they are all recorded. We heard last week from Kirsten Olson on her book, Wounded by School, a, a brilliant treatment of kind of, uh, she looked at uh, prominent people who were doing learning as a part of their work life and interviewed them and discovered to her surprise how many of them had wounds from their own schooling they had to overcome. And I think, well, tonight's session really addresses a lot of that, maybe not directly, but uh, in any case, offering a, a different vision of how school might take place. This is where you get to let us know where you're participating from. So look to the left of the map. You're looking for the star icon. It's the second one down. You click on that twice and then click on the map. Maybe give a shout out. I am back in Park City, Utah this week, and we had snow today. I don't think it's going to last, but that was fun and an incredible lightning storm last night. I've never seen lightning of that scope. Oh, it's exciting. We're due for thunderstorms tonight in Portland, Oregon, so we'll see. Oh, yes. <clears throat> oh, while we're waiting for people to talk, to put their little marks up, thank you, those of you in Asia Pacific, for being here. I went to Powell's Books the other day for the first time oh, ever. Gosh, I didn't my, know you were in my, town, Steve. My trip, I was part of my Hack, Educa Hack Your Education tour, uh -huh. and uh, I thought, finally, I'm getting to Powell's books. And, and I'm not kidding. After about 20 minutes, I realized my life 
in with books is so much different than it was 10 years ago. It was so frustrating to not be able to look at users' reviews of books. <laughs> I mean, there was just <laughs> an incredible point. number of books there. And I was in the education section looking for things on Reggio Emilia and Montessori. And I had no way of gauging the, the other people's valuations of the books. And I literally realized I no longer am as consumed by the physical experience in a bookstore as I once was. Ah, that's interesting. But it's still quite a grand place, isn't it? <laughs> oh, incredible. <laughs> Just incredible. They were out of t-shirts that night or I would have bought one to proudly wear. Well, I'll have to get one to you, Steve. <laughs> Christmas is coming. I, I did watch an episode of Portlandia, which cracked me up. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's great. So you're all teed up for this conversation. Very funny. <laughs> great. Wherever you're participating from, we sure appreciate your being here. Um, Gina Bianchini created a mighty... Um, uh, Ning.com. A lot of people know Ning. Educators know Ning. And her newest project is Mighty Bell. I am uh, working for her as a consultant, so um, this is not an entirely um, dispassionate or un unrelated referral. But I created a Mighty Bell space for tonight's interview. Mighty Bell is a place where you can pull in links and documents and the like. It's sort of like a living um, syllabus. And I put some links in there. You can see the the link on that page to go into the Mighty Bell session for tonight's interview. I think Susie's actually already joined. So there's yep, a I added a couple things too. There. Uh -huh. Awesome. Good for you. Okay, so this uh, the, the word innovation is just intriguing as it's beginning to be applied to education. And I'm ready to claim some that, you, that you've hit on something brilliant here, and I want to explore a little and tell you why I think it's so brilliant. But, but tell us, what is innovation? What is creativity? How are the two are related? And how, what kind of a role should they play in education? Oh, it's such a big and great question. Um, and you know, without at all trying to pass the buck, I'm going to say right up front that one of the things I encourage schools to do, or communities of educators working together, is really define education for yourself. Because I think it does mean different things in different contexts. And if you're going to you know, deliberately introduce students to thinking in an innovative way or becoming innovators, I think it's important to be clear what you mean, what you're actually talking about. And I guess for me, um, if I think of innovation and creativity, you know, they're kind of close cousins, and yet there are some differences. Creativity tends to be more about, at least from my way of thinking, more about personal expression, connecting to culture, reflecting culture. Innovation is a little more practical. Um, you know, kind of creates, um, it's a process that allows things to happen, creates kind of a new normal or a new way of thinking, um, new way of behaving so that once an innovation has happened, you can see it in hindsight and you can think, oh, so that's what we were waiting for. You know, how did we ever get along without this or without that? Um, and I guess, a, I guess a quick way to think about it is, if you imagine the early painters on cave walls, I think that the art that we see that, that persists and that is so dramatic, um, you know, that's coming from this kind of wellspring of creativity. But if you stop to think about who was figuring out how to get the color into the paints and how to create paints that last, that's innovation. And so for me, there, there it is, you know, both kind of together. Um, and once someone has figured out how to make paints that will last for years and years and hundreds of years, um, you have a new way of expressing yourself, you know, for all time. And so that's the innovator at work. Well, what I realized as you described innovation and described innovators was that uh, the word kind of serves as a bucket for a number of incredibly positive ways of thinking about teaching and learning. Um, it's sort of thinking plus engagement plus entrepreneurship. And I've, I've wondered if you've gotten any pushback on this idea. When you explain what you're talking about with innovation, does anybody say to you, well, that's all fine and good, but there's just core content that people need to learn? Sure. 
<laughs> of course. You know, I think the reality of um, education, particularly public education, as we know it in the U.S., you know, which is what I think um, most of us in this audience are most familiar with, although we have some uh, global listeners as well. Um, you know, we live and breathe the standards and accountability. But I think if we look at what um, kind of our, our newer standards are calling for, if you look at things like the ISTE nets, which have a, one of their key strands is about innovation and creativity. If you look at the framework for 21st century skills, um, innovation, again, is one of the um, key goals that students need to be um, accomplishing or, or you know, learning how to put into practice. Um, so th there is some pushback from teachers who feel like, well, this is going to be one more thing that um, somehow I'm supposed to squeeze into the day, and it's very complicated and hard and challenging, and can we really create innovators anyways? Um, so there are those arguments, and we can talk some more about you know, some of the, the responses to those. Um, you know, but I think what I've tried to do is be both optimistic and practical. You know, optimistic in terms of looking at the opportunity we have by bringing innovation to school. What does that mean and what does that set the um, stage for, for what might happen in the future with what our innovative students can do? Um, and also practical by looking at what's happening right now. You know, I visited lots and lots of schools that are living in the world of accountability and standards and managing to infuse um, the school day, one way or another, with innovative thinking. So it, it does seem to be possible without waiting for an entire remake of our education system. Um, but you know, there are some caveats, of course. But you know, things can happen, and indeed, things are happening that are pretty exciting. So you probably don't know this, but my brother wrote a book on innovation called How Breakthroughs Happen. Oh. And it was one of the first to sort of deal with this myth of the lone inventor. And mm -hmm. um, it, it's a relatively well-known book in academic circles. But so I've had you know, ongoing conversations with Andy for years about innovation in school. And I actually came to your book with a slightly negative preconception, in part because I often hear the word innovation used as part of the political dialogue. Right? We, need to we need more innovative uh, students, students coming out who can be innovative workers in order to make the United States a more uh, competitive nation in order to beat other countries. And so I carry a, a little bit of a concern that sometimes we use innovation to indicate um, just additional kind of trained workers into a system rather than the kind of independence of thinking that I really feel like came out in the book. How do you make that distinction? Hmm. Well, you know, I guess I should explain I have a couple of different lenses that I'm looking through. Um, and I think that really helps me um, in, in the way I think about innovation and see what's possible. And I, I really hear you, Steve, when you talk about innovation is just one more kind of worker productivity skill that, that we're hammering away on or, or you know, um, a way for us to be globally competitive and it's all about um, making money at the end of the day. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. I mean, of, of course, some young people who learn how to innovate will grow up to develop products that will make money, and that's fabulous. But that's kind of one slice of what innovation, I think, is all about. Um, so back to these two lenses. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time writing and thinking about education. I've been doing that for, um, you know, going on a couple of decades now. Um, as a working in initially at a research lab and then, you know, um, doing a lot of work with teachers in professional development, doing a lot of writing about project-based learning, and work with the Buck Institute for Education, which is focused on project-based learning. So, you know, lots of time in the classroom, in and around the classroom, and observing great teachers at work. Um, but I have this other set of lenses in my writing life um, in which you know, I'm, I'm talking with people who really are solving or attempting to solve some of the world's big, challenging, thorny, wicked problems. And these are the social innovators, you know, the people who are coming at these difficult problems with the same kinds of strategies that can lead to um, an innovation in the commercial sector. But 
their focus is on really changing, you know, improving the world, solving things like global poverty or illiteracy or um, access to clean water. Um, so I think if you have those, that perspective and if, if you had opportunities to learn from people who are coming at problem solving in, in just exactly the ways we want our students to be able to do when they grow up, um, I, you know, I guess what I keep thinking is these social innovators are exactly who our students could become tomorrow if they have the right opportunities to get there, to get started. Um, so, so for me, um, innovation is a big bucket, as you said, and includes both the, kind of the commercial, product-oriented, um, you know, better mousetrap kinds of thinking that we've been talking about, as well as this kind of problem-solving strategy that's going to allow students to tackle these big, messy, challenging problems with a degree of confidence and optimism that they actually can get some ideas started, you know, that they can make things happen. So like I said, I, I came with a slightly negative preconception, but I certainly left loving the concept. In oh, part because, well, for me, what was interesting was, and, and I can tell you the moment in the book when I really shifted gears, and it was the beanbag toss to chicken coop to farmer's market project. <laughs> yeah. Because what it said, what I realized was, okay, what you're calling innovation, and would, rightly so, is actually my sort of highest ideal of how we would think about learning. Mm -hmm. And the word innovation has such um, currency right now and credibility that it feels as though it's this moment of opportunity to focus on innovation in ways that help us to get to the kinds of learning experiences that we would hope that all children would have. Is that not doing justice to the newness of the idea? Am I not being fair to you if I kind of make a connection between how you're describing innovation and some of my sort of previous ideals of how schooling would be? No, I'm I'm flattered with your summary, Steve, and I'm you know I'm thrilled that you kind of made that shift in your own thinking. Um, and you know, if, if you want me to talk a little bit about the example that you shared, I think it's a good one that shows you kind of how accessible some of these strategies are. Um, you were describing um, just a brilliant um, educator named Emily Pilliton uh, with Project H Design. Um, so the, the, I actually introduced the book with her because um, a lot of what I talk about connects to this whole interesting approach that's known as design thinking or using the strategies that designers use to come at problems and come out with solutions. You know, they're very um, doable on the other side. Um, she introduced the processes of thinking about design and thinking about problem solving the way designers do, and that's her academic background at, you know, in the world of design. Um, in a very rural setting in North Carolina, and she wanted students to think about how can we actually improve our community? What can we do? And she wanted them to think about the built environment. You know, what can we make, um, even though innovation sometimes is about processes, you know, different ways of doing things, she wanted them to think about what could we build because she wanted them to have a tangible um, artifact that was going to be there in their community as a symbol of kind of what they had done together and it would be used, not just a, um, a monument to innovation, but, you know, something that was going to really be there to change their community and then everybody would see and interact with. And they wound up kind of creating a whole new pavilion for a farmer's market in a community that didn't have access um, to produce, even though it was a rural area where people were involved in agriculture, there was not a local trading place. Um, for produce. So that's where students, that's the kind of the end of the year, what they wound up making. But on the way there, they had to learn how to design and build things. Um, and these were skills that they just did not have. Right down to how do you measure things with a ruler? These were high school students who, you know, she pointed out, hadn't had an opportunity to think about designing things, being, um, you know, people who draw and who imagine ideas and, and go from, you know, the, the mind's eye um, to paper to something created. They hadn't had a chance to do that in years because they'd been in kind of a traditional um, learning environment that didn't give them much room to mess around with ideas like that. And so they had to start way back with something simple, which was this kind of beanbag 
um, toss game that you were describing. And they, the next step after they were successful with that was to design chicken coops. Um, very, you know, great uh, right-sized problem for them to tackle because they were in a community um, that had been through a devastating flood. People needed um, to kind of rebuild their homes and their whole home environments. So creating and building chicken coops that they could give away would allow people to kind of grow some food for themselves, you know, but let them put their design chops to work. And these are the craziest looking chicken coops you, you have ever seen. I've seen a you know, museum um, exhibit of them, and they're just wild looking. Um, but eventually, through that process, you know, they, they learned a tremendous amount about how to come out a problem, how to find out what's going to work, how to talk to people about um, you know, what's practical, what do they really need, you know, what's the real problem that we're focusing on here. And eventually, end of the year, they get to the farmer's market pavilion, which is just you know, gorgeous. And eventually, the mayor gives them the key to the city um, in a wonderful um, grand opening ceremony. So, you know, a very nice ending to that story. So I feel like I'm pitching an Apple product using superlatives. But to me, there's real brilliance there. And you know, I think in part because one of the questions I'd love to ask at a workshop is, what's something that you love to do that required learning that was outside of formal education? And I asked it this last week in Canada, and a fellow answered that it's curling. And so I asked them, how did you learn the art of curling. I mean, it's a sport, and um, you know, it's it's highly social. It's peers working with each other to teach. It's uh, iteration and failure. It's um, looking for instruction and figuring things out. And I, you know, what I guess what I really loved about your description there and, and throughout the book is that this so matches kind of how we naturally learn versus kind of our narratives around education. Absolutely, and it's how we naturally learn, and it's how we want to learn. I mean, I think in these um, different scenarios that I described, the students really want to learn something. You know, they have this kind of powerful need to figure things out, um, and it's not that they're being told you must learn, you know, these skills and then pass this test. It's that no, we really need to figure them things out so that we can solve this problem that we're so interested in and we're so kind of committed to solving. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with you completely that it's um, it's an exciting way to learn. I just recently had the chance to hear John Seeley Brown talk for the first time. I'd never I've been a big fan of his writing for a long time, but I'd never heard him um, speak before. And he was talking about the same thing that, that you were, Steve. It wasn't curling in this case, but he was using examples of kind of extreme learners, and they were skateboarders and surfers. And his point was, you know, here's this guy with a you know background of running the Xerox Park Center and a you know very fancy computer science uh, thinker. Um, but when he thinks about really accomplished learners, he's studying skateboarders um, and surfers to find out how do they learn from each other and literally falling down and getting back up again on the path to learning. And, I, and that made me very excited. Um, first of all, because it was just such a great contrast, you know, for this kind of erudite, smart person to be talking about learning from skateboarders and surfers, and also because he was doing one of those things that I think innovative thinkers use a lot, and that's he was kind of thinking in metaphors um, as he was describing the whole learning process. So there was another aspect of this book that I will call brilliant again, and that <laughs> was the degree to which you create a very tangible parallel between innovation by the adults in the system, the educators and the administrators, and for the students. Uh, not just in terms of modeling, but also in being able to create the environments where innovation can take place. Right. I mean, you know, I think it's imperative that teachers feel that they have opportunities to be innovators themselves. Um, you know, I think great teachers are innovating all the time, whether they realize it or not. Developing curriculum, designing projects, um, improving on them through iterative cycles. That's the innovation process, you know, right there. And particularly in the way we're going where teachers are finding ways then to, to share great ideas and grow them and take them to a bigger scale. That's very much what innovation is all about. And I think they're, when they're behaving in that way, 
they're creating opportunities for students to be innovators, and they're also being role models for, you know, this is how we work um, in this day and age. This is how we come at things. Um, and, and I just ran into example after example of an innovative um, teacher who would come up with an idea that was just literally too good to keep to himself or herself and, you know, had to bring others on board. Um, and using our various technology tools that we have, you know, right at our fingertips and using our personal networks and all those sorts of things, ideas can really scale rapidly. And, you know, I, I, of course, I continue hearing about great examples, um, even though the book um, came out a couple months ago. But just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about an Edutopia post about quad blogging. I don't know if you've encountered quad blogging yet, Steve, but again, a great idea started by an educator from the UK, a fellow named David Mitchell, who understood the power of blogs to get his students to be better writers, you know, to write more often, to write with more um, intensity and more intentionality um, because they had an audience that would listen to them. But he also understood that without that audience, it, the whole thing kind of falls flat. And so he created quad blogging, which is a way to link up four classrooms from anywhere in the world. Each week, one of them is kind of the um, showcase class. The other three pile on with comments, and they're the readers. The next week it shifts. A different class is getting all the comments. You know, and he's created a web platform for this to match up um, schools rather effortlessly um, on the school's part. And, and at this point, I think he's reached about 2,000 schools and something like 100,000 students. So you know, here's this idea that he came upon almost by chance, just talking to a few other teachers. It worked so well, he thought, again, too good to keep to myself. And the more schools we get involved here, um, you know, the more the audience is going to grow and we can mix and match in different ways. And I think this kind of thing is entirely possible. Um, you know, we see it happen again and again. Um, and, and can be really inspiring then for your students to see that, look, you know, my own teacher understands what innovation is and how to make things happen and kind of how to make learning very exciting. So I was, I was trying to emphasize that role of the teacher as innovator and not just someone who talks about innovation but actually engages in it. What I love about that quad blogging is it's not just a great idea, but it's a great name. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> and he's British too, so of course he has a wonderful way to say it that I can't quite emulate. But, um, you know, it, it just it's catchy, it's, you know, it has kind of a, an instant brand self-explanatory, all those things. It's just lots of things we're aligning there. So I want to explore something briefly with you. I feel as though the educational blogger community, uh, many of whom are participants in Edutopia or have been in Classroom 2.0 or you know, attend ISPE and go to the sort of unconference activities, that they have in many ways been modeling this kind of highly innovative style. Um, almost kind of the hacking, right? The willingness mm -hmm. to hack and figure things out and create something. And what what I find intriguing is that oftentimes the end result of that hacking is a desire to displace one system with another one, rather than seeing the value in the process. So um, a school does pretty well in a particular in in some way, and okay, so that should be the model for education. What I really liked also about the book was the degree to which it seems to focus on process. Right? People are going to approach this in a variety of different ways. They're going to have different gifts and strengths and talents. So they're not necessarily going to come up with the same result, but it's largely about the process that they go through. Is that a fair way to describe your take on innovation, that it is a process? I think so. I mean, obviously, we can look at you know the end results of innovation. We can see innovative things or innovative ideas, um, innovative products. Um, but I think what allows them to happen and what allows them to become accessible really is this process. And it's when, it's particularly when our, we're thinking about our students and how they're getting ready for the world ahead of them, if they learn that process, um, you know, we've seen it as young as, you know, the elementary grades. If they learn to think and work this way, it's not that 
they have to come up with some patentable idea by the time they graduate high school or, you know, or we failed in preparing them to be innovators. I don't think that's the goal. I think it's that they've learned a way of approaching problems in a kind of a confidence to come at problems that's going to carry with them. Um, and I think the same thing is true of teachers who have opportunities or, or really take hold of these opportunities that you're describing to kind of hack education, um, to come at it with some new strategies, um, to not kind of wait for a whole new system to be invented out of whole cloth, um, but to go ahead and make some things happen now. And you know, again, I think we see innovative people are those who don't just think about things, but actually do them. You know, they'll try them, they'll put them into action, see what happens. Let's get started with this and see where we go. Um, and again, that's a, a tendency that's going to be, you know, a, a very useful thing for our students to have um, as they leave school and, you know, encounter this thing called the real world just beyond the school doors. So I love Adrian's comment in the chat because the willingness to put something out there, to hack or to experiment, comes with the inherent risk that it might not work, right? Mm -hmm. So how does thinking of school as an innovation workshop help us to think about failure? Yeah, that, you know, um, I'm glad you asked that. You know, we hear this so often that, you know, we, you know, again and again, I'll hear people say, we need to give students room to fail. Um, you can't innovate without failure. And that's all true. But we need to get to the, so how do we do that part? Um, otherwise, it starts to sound like one of those um, kind of grand um, goals that we'll never quite accomplish. Um, so I really wanted to dig into this. How do you learn from failure? Um, it's such a key idea. And again, in the work that I've done interviewing um, innovators, out, you know, in the world beyond school, they they fail as quickly as they can because the idea is we want to find out what doesn't work keep the part that does work, and then move right along as fast as we can to, you know, improvements. But get the mistakes out of the way as quick as you can. Um, I think Facebook has a, a motto, um, move fast, break stuff. And it's that idea that, you know, coders know that you want to get the bugs out. Is get them out of the way as fast as you can and get things working. But what do you, how do you do this in a school setting where kids are used to grades? There's a fear of, um, of uh, the big F grade, you know, it, it's just the worst. And <laughs> I, I think some of the ways I've seen this work, one um, example that I offer is an, um, a teacher from Science Leadership Academy, one of my favorite schools in, in Philadelphia. And he's a, an engineering teacher. And on the, the very first thing he does with his students who are, you know, have never had an engineering class before, they're new to high school, they're new to this topic. Um, they might have an engineer in their family, so maybe they have a little bit of an idea of what engineers do, but it's a little bit mystical to them, you know, on the first day. And he challenges them to, to build something out of paper products. Um, and, you know, there are certain specifications it's supposed to meet, and, you know, it's basically um, a small wind, um, you know, wind-powered um, turbine, but out of, you know, office products. And he doesn't tell them how to do it. He doesn't tell them how big it should be. Um, he doesn't tell them where the paper products are, where the office products are. He just says, this is, this is your task, and asks them not to go to Google to look for ideas because he really wants to see what, you know, what they can come up with. And it takes a while for them to even get out of their seats and start looking for materials to work with. But pretty soon, they start messing around, which is exactly what he wants to happen. And um, the, the next thing he does is um, make one himself, again, with some office products that are sitting around the classroom. And then he brings out a fan and says, well, let's see if these things work. Let's start with mine. And you know, he turns the fan on, gives it a test, and of course falls right over. And he's modeling exactly what he wants his students to do, which is, well, that didn't work very well. I wonder why. I wonder what I could change or strengthen. Um, none of this, of course, is graded. It's very. Um, the atmosphere is relaxed. Um, it's okay to laugh, you know, if your uh, uh, windmill falls over um, because you know you're going to get opportunities to try again. And not just try again, but learn from what didn't work this time, put it to use the next time around. And I think this, this time in a project 
an ungraded um, uh, window of time where you're getting a lot of formative assessment. You're getting that feedback on what worked, what didn't work, what can I do next? Feedback, you know, from yourself, from your peers, from your teacher, from your own testing um, and analysis and prototyping and all of that. If you have opportunities to do that before anything is ever assessed for, you know, how does this measure up on a scale, you know, a, a rubric or a, a scoring guide or anything like that, I think you've created a different situation than what a lot of kids have ever experienced before. Um, and if they have that experience over and over again, they start to understand what it means to learn from failure. But we have to actually construct that and remind them. I was just talking to a teacher last week who was doing a project with her students where they were um, improving on the design of a solar um, heating, a solar oven that was used in places like Haiti, very low resource places. You know, so it's going to be used for heating water and for cooking. And you know, she had to remind students, you're going to have lots of opportunities to work on this that are not going to be graded. And, and when they're new to this, when they're freshmen, they kind of need a bit of a sales job on this. They don't quite believe it at first. Um, but I think if you create that opportunity and really mean it and give kids a, the opportunity to see how powerful that is to learn from what doesn't work, then they, you know, again, that becomes kind of a, a way of thinking and a way of working that will stick with them. You know, there's a great story in the book, and I can't remember who it was, but um, maybe it was the Environmental Schools Project. What was the, what's that called? Um, the Cool Schools Challenge? Cool Schools Challenge, where the, where the guy who had the idea and then is talking to his wife at this spot you know, where they'd stop their mountain bikes. But yes, Mike Town, point, right. I think at some point he says something like, uh, I'm not smart enough. And this is where I think there's this overlap with uh, Kirsten's book, Wounded by School. Because I think a lot of times school leaves people believing that they are not the smart ones, that they're not smart mm -hmm. enough. And those of us who spend time caring and feeding ideas and trying things out know that there's a little bit of a habit, I'll use um, Angela Meyer's word, there's a habitude of uh, being, uh, allowing yourself to not succeed. Okay, that didn't work, so now I'm going to move on. And it, it felt very much like the examples you described there provide an opportunity to not feel as though, okay, if, if I make one mistake, I'm now a failure. Right. I mean, it's so quick to, you know, we label ourselves so quickly. Our, you know, we do it to ourselves. Uh, school does that to us, you know, if we, if we fail over and over again. You know, we, we definitely get labeled. Um, but you know, the example you were pointing out, um, Mike Chown is an environmental educator who you know, started a um, project that's grown quite large. But the idea was he wanted to get some students who didn't see themselves as innovators or as people who were terribly accomplished, um, you know, didn't give themselves the label of being smart. He wanted them to have opportunities to be successful and to really be in a leadership situation. And he created these um, teams within a school where um, students on the team would do an energy audit of the entire school building, uh, hence the name Cool School Challenge, because the idea was to reduce the school's um, you know, carbon footprint and suggest very practical, doable, measurable things, um, either changes of behavior or changes in um, the mechanics of the building itself, but the students doing the auditing and doing the recommendations weren't necessarily the kids who had been the bright, shining science kids all along. He wanted to get the kids who, as he called them, the ones who were really good um, with their hands, the ones who were kind of tinkerers and fixers and um, good with working with tools, um, because a lot of this work involved those kinds of skills. And so it's kind of a self-strategy to get them to see, you know, what you're really good at is science. It turns out you're really a good candidate for these challenging STEM courses um, that we want more and more students involved in. And um, used himself, again, as an example of someone who it took him a while to come around to recognizing himself as someone with a lot of potential. You know, he didn't go into teaching right away because he didn't think he was college material. Um, and he's wound up convincing 
enormous numbers of students, um, not only that, uh, <laughs> that they're smart, but that they're capable, and in fact, you know, um, has them take environmental science um, AP classes in, in ASTA um, so that they leave high school you know, with some evidence that, yes, I can succeed at this kind of very high level um, in, you know, really kind of change their perception of, of who they are. Because, you know, his point is, you don't know where the innovators are going to come from. You don't know kind of which, um, which pool of kids are going to produce, you know, are tomorrow's great thinkers. Um, you know, I think if we look at examples all around us, we see all kinds of people who um, didn't finish high school because they got too immersed in some great idea that they just had to go out and build a company around or get, you know, get going with. Um, so, you know, his point is, let's make sure all kids see that they have opportunities to pursue ideas and um, capabilities. Um, you can kind of coax along sometimes and, and get them to really rethink what they're, what they're capable of doing. Uh, that, that story of the AP test and the telling the students, um, you know, that half of those who take the test in the country don't pass the test, so you pass that test, you know, that means you have the ability to succeed in things you're interested in. Right, and he just sort of challenges them. You know, he says, how dare you think you're not successful? Look what you've done. <laughs> you know, whether you think AP is a good idea or not, I think is beside the point. It's just, you know, he, he just makes their success so obvious that they can't deny it. So Briar and Adrian have made a great connection here in the chat, uh, and it related to failing. And Briar mm -hmm. mentions uh, a game I've actually played called Amazing Alex, where you build contraptions, and it uh, the, the, the ball goes down and it has to roll around the right ways, and it's really built around failing. Because mm -hmm. you do it and it doesn't work, so you have to figure out how to do it again, it doesn't work, and then you're, you're moving things around. And Adrian mentioned that most games are designed that way. So, so let's talk a little bit about gaming, because you do talk about gaming in the book. Uh, a little bit. I mean, I, I'm not a gamer myself, so I can't get too far into this, but I can sure talk a little bit about some examples. I'd love it. And tell us what the black cloud is. Yes, this is just, oh, you know, sometimes you, you hear of projects and just think, I just wish I'd been in that guy's class. This just sounded so fun. Um, and it, the examples of games that I use um, in the book are, are games that, again, cause students to see themselves as problem solvers. And that may be the case in many games. I just, as I said, I'm not a gamer and I don't know if that's always um, an outcome of a game or not. Um, but in the games that um, I'm focused on here, they really do connect with real problems in the world. Um, the game world and the real world are very closely connected, and often there's kind of a, you know, bleeding over from one to the other, um, going from the game world to some real action in the real world. So I'll tell you a little bit about the Black Cloud Project. This was um, a teacher, Anchero um, Garcia, who at the time I first uh, met him was teaching in South Central LA. Um, and he had a, he's an English teacher. I think that's important to remember as we go into this game. And he, you know, is kind of a gamer himself and is interested in, um, has wide-ranging interests, as many innovative thinkers do. Um, and he happened to hear about um, a game designer from UC Berkeley um, who created this game that, or, or created a device um, that takes real-time readings of air pollution um, and noise pollution and you know several different indicators of quality of you know your air your environmental quality I guess in your very local context and the way the game works is that these little read readout devices um, which are called Pufftrons, I think, um, they're located, you know, you, he kind of hid them around the local community as if it were a scavenger hunt. Kids had to go out and find them and then make sense of the data that was being um, collected in real time. So they would like then compare why is this reading so much higher at the dry cleaners at the gas station than it is somewhere else. And they were in the process of making sense of these readings, learning about the environmental quality of their very own local community. And the big surprise for everyone was that this, the device, the um, sensor in their own classroom indicated some of the worst air quality of anywhere there had been, you know, worse than the dry cleaners, worse than the gas station. Um, 
and led to some actual remediation at the school um, because they they kind of raised the alarm in a very public way. They had a, a public event where here's where the English um, language skills come into play. Um, you know, they created presentations, talked about what they had learned through this environmental science project. And it, go, it went on, to, you know, much more detail than that. Um, they created all kinds of alternate, you know, um, scenarios of what their community could look like if um, more attention were paid to environmental issues. Um, but it had this whole game feel to it where um, it went from kind of the scavenger hunt and, you know, how do we understand this, what we're finding, to what, now what do we do about it? You know, if we're to, to take this information and do something in our own community, how can we become kind of agents of change? And that's kind of the role they wound up playing. Uh, that it's a great story, and it's um, there's a you make a distinction, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the phrasing you use, um, where it, it's a there is a game atmosphere, but it's authentic. Can you remind me? Alternate, alternate reality, I believe. Alternate is reality. Right. These are, you know, Jane um, McGonigal, who's um, famous in the gaming world. Um, these are her kinds of games where they connect to issues in our real lives. Um, and they cause us to bring the kind of positive energy that we enjoy during, in a game, you know, the, that sense of I can get better at this, I can win at this. We carry that energy over into then solving real problems that we've learned about or gotten excited about or interested about through the game itself. So it's been fun for me to talk with Howard Rheingold about peer learning. And then Sugata Mitra came and keynoted the Learning 2.0 virtual conference. Um, as you look at this and as you look at the impact of students on each other, do you think we're going to become increasingly comfortable with the idea that a lot of the learning that takes place is actually between the students? Is that is that more evident in an un, in an environment that promotes uh, kind of innovative thinking? Well, you know, I, I think we have to get comfortable with the, the idea that the, nobody owns all the answers. You know, there's no one expert about anything anymore, right? I mean, information is distributed, expertise is distributed, and if we're going to learn anything, we have to learn how to learn from and with each other and improve on each other's ideas. Um, and I think teachers who are doing project-based learning understand that already. You know, they're already operating in that way where they're very much in a facilitator role, a coaching role, rather than, you know, I'm the expert and um, when you figure out what I want you to know, then, you know, then you'll be accomplished too. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, they're, the teacher is definitely setting up the situation, um, but creating it in such a way that um, the teacher is one voice among many in, in a classroom where that kind of learning is going on. And I think we're moving more in that direction. Um, certainly, uh, you know, and again, I have a bias because I'm always looking for great examples of project-based learning and, and projects where kids are really taking the lead on their own learning. Um, so maybe I'm seeing what I'm looking for. Um, but, but it feels like, you know, once you've seen kids learning this way, um, it's pretty hard to imagine going back. And it's really hard to imagine for the students once they've experienced this and, and had the kind of power of a very much a peer-to-peer -peer learning situation, it's pretty tough for them then to go on to a more traditional um, kind of sit and be passive mode because um, they know, you know, they know otherwise. They've, they've kind of um, had a different experience. It also felt to me like there was a fairly consistent um, secondary story of the students being involved in seeding the ideas, that there was a significant role for the students um, in each of the stories. Is that, was that just my perception, or do you feel the same way? No, I think that's it's it's key. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the need for student voice in learning, and particularly in project-based learning. But I think in these examples, where um, sometimes projects took off in directions teachers didn't anticipate, and it was because the teachers were willing to um, 
allow students to ask questions, suggest ideas that perhaps the teacher hadn't thought of. I'm going to go into a great long description of a project that wound up um, with a group of students and teachers taking some um, water purification devices that they had developed, um, taking those to Haiti. That project never would have happened if the teacher hadn't heard a student who interrupted or you know, didn't interrupt, but who um, in a normal average day where you know nothing terribly innovative was going on, she asked a question that caused him to set aside the lesson plan. And it was that he was explaining um, the consequences of you know environmental degradation, what that does to he was using Haiti as an example and why the hurricanes and the storms had wreaked such havoc there, um, why the um, absence of drinking water was such a colossal human health issue. And she just you know, raised her hand and said, you know, we do these labs all the time that focus on things like purifying water. You know, why can't we use what we're learning to actually help people have clean drinking water? Why can't we put it to work? Um, and, you know, he, he described this as just one of those transformational moments in his own career as a teacher. And he was not a new teacher. He's been at this for, you know, well into his third decade, I think he said, of teaching. But when he heard that question, he just felt like, we have to do something. This student has asked a profound question. Her classmates kind of, you know, you can kind of imagine a little bit of hum, like, oh, yeah, let's do that, let's do that. Um, and he didn't want to let go of that. So he basically reconfigured his entire curriculum so that they could focus on very much strong science content, but in the context of um, answering that student's very profound and authentic question. And I think again and again, we see examples of students coming up with questions that really deserve an answer. And those are the ones that are going to motivate them to dig in to really, I mean, when you um, watch students engage in these kinds of projects, um, they're pretty, you know, they're, they're deep into it. They are um, uh, definitely committed um, to their own learning and to making this all happen. Um, and I think that comes from that student voice, um, a teacher who's willing to listen, um, a teacher who's willing to say, well, you know, I'm not quite sure how, but we're going to work together and figure this out and make it happen. So if you haven't read the book, uh, there's the ending to this story that involves cholera that you have to read. So we're just going to leave that. Oh, gosh. There. Go buy the book. And <laughs> One of my favorite um, statistics or uh, pieces of information that came out of the PISA exams and the studies that relate specifically to Finland was that Finland scores at the highest levels in so many areas, but in one area they score very low, hmm. and that's classroom control. Hmm. And I thought about this a lot because the description is that the, it was it takes longer for the teachers to bring the classes into control in Finland than it does in most other countries. Well, you can interpret that in another way, right? <laughs> that that's energy, uh, passion, interest, liveliness. So uh, these are things that we normally consider disruptive. But your description of the book would indicate that these are also signs of things working well. Right, and again, it's one of those balancing acts. I mean, you don't want your classroom to feel like total chaos, the Wild West, you know, no one's accountable to anyone for anything, anything goes. Um, that's not going to be a classroom that's going to work in most contexts. But if the, the teachers in Finland, um, if the, maybe it's the wrong metric, you know? If the question is, how quickly can you bring your class under the teacher's control, that means how quickly will your students interrupt what they're learning, what they're thinking about, the peer that they're talking with? Um, you know, how quickly will they be um, kind of snapped to? Is that really what we want to measure in time? I mean, that's a little bit worrisome, don't you think? I'm with you. <laughs> that's why I love that piece of information. Okay, so we've got about five minutes left for Q&A. 
I've got a couple of other questions I'll ask if, if nobody asks anything, but this mm -hmm. has really been delightful so far, Susie, and um, we do oh, I love your questions, Steve. As a courtesy, we do finish on time, so we are going to hold to the five minutes, but if you have a question for Susie, please feel free to raise your virtual hand. That's the third icon over in the, at the top of the participant window, or you can put it in the chat. If you've put a question in the chat and I've missed it, please uh, post it again. It is really hard to follow the chat, and I'm, uh, I'm quite certain I've missed a lot of, of real value there. So while yeah. we're waiting, um, tell, me, tell us about what an Innovation Advisory Council is. Um, yeah, you know, there aren't too many examples of those yet, but I'm hoping that there will be more. Um, I mean, the idea is find people in your community who are invested and vested in innovation. They might be, um, you know, business people who live and breathe innovation every day. They might be nonprofit leaders who are deep into um, understanding problems that your students might have an opportunity to address. Um, you know, they might be inventors. Um, they might be people who are good at, at the social media side of innovation. And the idea is they can be a sounding board for you. Um, there's a school that I describe, and a school I visited quite a bit in um, Gwinnett County, Georgia. Um, and it's a, an academy within a larger high school. The high school is called Lanier High School. Um, and there's a teacher there, um, Mike Riley, who just has these wonderful relationships with his advisors. Um, he has kind of a studio-style classroom where his students are doing things that relate very much to what's going on in the local economy, and it's about uh, multimedia publishing and video and music production, digital gaming. Those are sort of the industries in the area, and people from those industries are his sounding board, and they come in regularly, talk with him about kind of trends they're seeing. Um, they engage with students as experts. and. Um, judges sometimes, or, or someone who, um, if students want to pitch an idea to someone and see how it goes over, you know, how, how would this be received? Um, they, they serve in that capacity. And I think this is a, you know, a really great way to connect school and community um, around a very specific goal. And it also gives the volunteers on that board an opportunity to, to bring their skills um, and, and volunteer in a way that makes them feel like they're really contributing, you know, that they have something to offer. Again, I just really love the way in which the word innovation sits at a, at a cultural and historic moment where it um, has such positive connotation and would elicit such a positive response. So if you have a question, oh, here's a question. So Adrian wants to know, with the story about the teacher who listened to the student and took the learning to a different direction, I believe the mm -hmm. teacher did more than just listen. I believe mm -hmm. that they had a certain mastery of the material and what they were out to achieve. What do you see as the preconditions required to have all teachers behave like that teacher? Yeah, well, this again, this is kind of a special teacher, I think. But I think we can learn from his example. One thing that he has is a really solid understanding of his content area. You know, he's a science teacher, and he understands there are many different ways he can approach teaching and learning about science. And if the context, um, if providing a context like clean water in Haiti makes the subject matter more motivating for his students, then he's willing to change context. He still had his students un, you know, learn and master the same content that um, they would have needed to learn Anyways, and he wasn't like some, you know, renegade rebel style teacher who was going to do this, and um, you know, consequences um, can fall where they may. You know, he talked this through with his uh, school leader, his superintendent, and um, made the case of you know how this could work and why. Um, and in fact, eventually, it grew to be a project that that every grade level in the school had a hand in this. Um, by the time it reached the kind of big culmination. So it really grew um, in scale. So I think really starting with understanding, you know, what is it I need to teach? And then the other big piece of it is, what do I know about my students? How am I going to connect with them and get them to be as excited about this content as I am, and as I hope that they will be? I think that's a great place to finish. Susie, thanks so much. I loved the book. Oh, thank you, Steve. I'm just thrilled to hear you say that. It was really, it's really 
worth reading, Bringing Innovation to School, Empowering Students to Change in a Thriving World. Uh, do you know Denise Pope? You know, I do not. I do not. But you've been having some um, amazing interviews, and I, I will do my best to listen in tomorrow. <laughs> well, don't feel like you're obligated to. But, but Denise graduated from Stanford about a year after I did. And I, um, I don't know that I had made that connection, but she is at Stanford now, and, and you have lots of Stanford huh. connections, so I wondered if maybe you knew her. Yeah. Anyway, she's on tomorrow night. Yeah. Jamie McMillan on Thursday night. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much to Susie Boss. Really appreciate your being here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Good night, everybody. Right. Thanks. Good night, everybody. Have a great day or evening. Sure appreciate your being here. Take care and bye.